want to start with um, thinking with you about Psalm 15. Um, and uh, this is a Psalm of David, and he's asking this question, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And then the answer that he gives in verses 2 and following uh, basically presents a blameless man, someone who is righteous. And then look over at Psalm 24. In Psalm 24, you have uh, a similar question in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And then the answer that comes in verses 4 and 5, again, is uh, this blameless and righteous man. He is the one who can do this. But then in verse 6, David seems to extend it to a group of people. He says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. This dynamic between the, the individual righteous man and the group of righteous people is also in Psalm 1, where you have, blessed is the man, and then he's described. And then later in the psalm, when it says, the wicked are not so, but they will be like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. So you've got an individual righteous man, and then you've got a congregation of righteous people. And then in Psalm 2, you know, the enemies are setting themselves against Yahweh and his Messiah. But then at the end of the psalm, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So all th I would suggest to you that all through the Psalms, you have this relationship between the individual righteous man, who in David's day is David himself, even though he's a sinner, but they're expecting one who will be more righteous than David, righteous in ways that David never was. And then just as there were people who believed God's word and aligned themselves with David and saw that Saul was wicked and unjust, and, and so they supported David's cause, so there will be people who align with the seed of David and see that his enemies are wicked and, you know, see that uh, the seed of David is Yahweh's representative. So, so there's this, this relationship between the individual seed of the woman and the collective seed of the woman. And then you have, on the other side, the seed of the serpent, who are of their father, the devil, as, as Jesus puts it. But while we're looking here at Psalm 24, uh, look at... Look at what happens in verses 7 through 10. Um, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. What are these gates? What are these ancient doors? What is this place that has been um, closed from ancient times? I think this, this uh, evokes the Garden of Eden, the way to which is guarded by the cherubim with the, with the flaming sword, uh, the, 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 the sacred space that is closed off to humanity. And, and I, I think that... Uh, the fact that this is a hill of the Lord that is going to be ascended, it's like Ezekiel 28, where um, Eden is depicted as this mountain uh, that where, where Satan was in the beginning. And, um, and so I think that, that this, this king of glory, who is blameless and righteous, and who is in some kind of way identified with Yahweh, verse 8, who is this king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty, Yahweh mighty in battle. Um, this king is going to cause the ancient doors and the ancient gates to be opened. Um, and, and so I think what David is doing in this psalm is he's interpreting the ancient problem and he's suggesting the resolution to that problem um, when, when God's people are redeemed. Um, let me draw your attention to Psalm 29. Um, and look at verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. 
This term, the, the term for flood here, mabul, it only occurs in Genesis 6 through 9 with the flood of Noah and here. I think these are the only two places in the whole Bible that it occurs. This is one of those facts I would want to check again every time I stay, every time I stated, I'm like, am I remembering that correctly? But I think that's correct. That, that this, this Hebrew word mabul only happens in Genesis 6 through 9 with reference to the flood of Noah and then here in, in uh, Psalm 29, verse 10. Um, now look at, look at verse 1. This is a psalm of David. Ascribe to Yahweh, O heavenly beings. And I want to check this because I think this is B'nai Elim, O sons of God. Um, which, what does that call to mind in the context of the flood? Yeah, B'nai Elim is what this is. I think in Genesis 6, when it says, um, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, I think it's slightly different. It might be B'nai Elohim there. So it's slightly different, but nevertheless, you know, the instance, the use of the term Mabul, and then the reference to the sons of God, I think this is definitely referring to what happened at Noah's flood. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly... So, who are these heavenly beings? Well, they're the, those rebellious sons of God who saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. I think he's talking about angels, de demons, who uh, sinned with human women. And, um, and these rebels are being called to ascribe glory and strength to Yahweh. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. And then David starts talking about the flood in verses 3 through 9. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The God of glory thunders Yahweh over many waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is full of majesty. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. Yahweh breaks the cedars of Lebanon. I think David is envisioning Yahweh's command summoning the floodwaters. And then as this tsunami wall of water moves through Lebanon, those massive cedars of Lebanon are just snapped and broken by the floodwaters. So I would contend that David is reflecting on the flood here. And, um, and then he goes on in verse 6. He says, he makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. And I think the skipping like a calf is a way of describing the upheaval that's resulting from this, this fast-moving water that is breaking these timbers and, and moving this, these, this, you know, deposits of sediment as the floodwaters come, come roaring through. Verse 7, the voice of Yahweh flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of Yahweh makes the deer give birth. Perhaps what's happening here is these animals are so terrified by the flood that they go into labor or something like that and strips the forest bare. And then at the end of verse 9, and in his temple all cry glory. What temple are we talking about here? What temple, in what temple... Is everything crying out the glory of Yahweh? It's the cosmic temple, isn't it? It's the earth. So, so you may be familiar with this idea. You, if, if you've seen uh, G.K. Beale's book, The Temple and the Church's Mission, uh, he argues that um, in, in the biblical author's conception, um, the earth was built as a cosmic temple for Yahweh to, to uh, be present with his people. And I think Psalm 29 reflects this ideology. And this would inform um, Isaiah saying in Isaiah 66, um, heaven is my home, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool, not just the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. The earth is my footstool. The whole earth is going to be the Holy of Holies, which is what happens in Revelation when uh, the New Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven and it's a perfect cube. Um, the earth is my foot. What is the house you would build for me? I built my house, this universe, and, and I think that's what David is saying here. Um, in his temple, as God visits the flood, everything resounds with God's glory. And then verse 10, 
Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. Yahweh sits enthroned as king forever. May Yahweh give strength to his people. May Yahweh bless his people with peace. In the surrounding context, in the immediately preceding context, in, in Psalm 28, for instance, look at what David says in verse 2. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help. Verse 3, do not drag me off with the wicked. Verse 4, give to them according to their work, the wicked. Give to the, judge the wicked. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Because, verse 5, they do not regard the works of Yahweh or the work of his hands. And then verse 6, blessed be Yahweh, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. So I think in the flow of thought of these psalms, David has these enemies who are opposing him. And in his historical life, the early part of his life, it's Saul and all of Saul's henchmen who are trying to kill David. And David's response to that is to meditate on the flood. And then to warn his enemies, essentially, the sons of God could not stand against Yahweh in the flood waters. And, and when he's talking about the voice of Yahweh breaking the cedars, well, it's that same voice of Yahweh that has promised that David will be king. So I think that David is, is reflecting on um, his situation being persecuted, and he's bringing to bear on that situation the fact that Yahweh is the flood king. Yahweh is the one who reigns, and there is no one who can stand against him. There is no one who will overcome him. Saul won't overcome him. Demonic powers won't overcome him. No one can stand against him. And this is a great encouragement for us too, isn't it? I mean, this Sunday, Lord willing, I would ask you guys to pray for this. Uh, Sunday night at Kenwood Baptist Church, we are going to have a, uh, an evangelistic sermon or evangelistic talk on Harry Potter and the deepest magic. And there is, there is no power in heaven or on earth that can keep God's elect from hearing the gospel and believing. And so I would, I would ask you guys to pray that God would bring non-believers and that they would hear the gospel and rejoice in it. Um, it'll be a success if we get non-Christians in the room. That's, that's what we're hoping for, for non-Christians to be present. And then, and then we're, con we're confident that the word of God is going to bear fruit because nothing can stop the power of God's voice. Nothing can stand against him. Okay, um, let's go forward. And I want to I take you now. I want to make a suggestion about what's happening in Psalm 40. And um, this is the other night uh, uh, Keith mentioned quirky interpretations that we, we all have. This is, one of, this is one of my pet interpretations. I'm going to suggest it to you, and uh, you be a Berean, and you see if these things are so. And I'll just, here, here's, what I'm, here's what I'm trying to do with this explanation of Psalm 40. I'm trying to understand the, the quotation of this text in Hebrews chapter 10. So look with me, if you will, over at Hebrews chapter 10. And, um, you know, in the first four verses, he's talking about the relationship between the law, which is a shadow of the good things to come, and Christ, and Christ's sacrifice. And then he says in verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Um, so what I want to do is propose an understanding of Psalm 40, uh, that I think will uh, help us to understand what's happening in Hebrews chapter 10. And, and you'll just have to be the judge of whether or not I'm successful. If you think I'm terribly unsuccessful and you know of a better explanation, I would love to hear it. Maybe you can explain it to me over lunch. So uh, let's look at Psalm 40. Um, to the choir master of Psalm of David, David writes, I waited patiently for Yahweh. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps secure. Verse 2 verse two says he drew me up from the pit of destruction. Is there any place in the narratives of David's life that we read about him being in a pit? 
He's in a cave. But there's not any place where David describes him, or, or where David is described as being in a pit, so far as I know. Well, there's not. I mean, I've searched, I've, you know, used the search programs. This word for pit is not used with reference to one of David's experiences. Who was put in a pit? Jeremiah. Joseph. That's exactly right. Jeremiah later, but Joseph. And, and I think that David is identifying with Joseph. And David is suggesting that his experience is like Joseph's experience. Both of them were designated by the Lord as the, as the, the one the Lord would use to deliver his people. Both of them were rejected by Israelites. Both of them were later, later exalted over Israel and everybody else and uh, used to deliver God's people. Um, verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. This sounds like Psalm 1, doesn't it? Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Verse 5, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. And that brings us to verse 6. And, and I'd like you to stick a finger here and turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And um, so I'm going to read verses 6 through 8, where David writes, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Psalm 40, verse 6. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your Torah is within my heart. Here's what I would propose David is doing. I mean, right after this in right after this in 1 Samuel 15, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, Samuel said to Saul, he has also rejected you from being king. And then Samuel says those same words again in verse 26. Yahweh has rejected you from being king over Israel. And then he says in verse 28, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Um, in the next chapter in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16, Saul, Samuel anoints David to be king. And the spirit leaves Saul and comes upon David. So I would propose that in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, David is reflecting on Saul's rebellious sacrifice, a sacrifice that God did not command, a sacrifice that God did not desire. What God wanted from Saul was for Saul to put the Amalekites under the ban. Saul kept the best of the things, then he blamed it on the people. And then when Samuel asked him, why have you kept what is this lowing of sheep and the cattle and, and oxen in my ear? And Saul says, we, the people kept the best of the things to sacrifice to your God. And Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in sacrifice and offerings as in obeying the voice of the Lord. And I think David is reflecting on this and he's saying, you didn't delight in sacrifice and offerings, but you've given me an open ear, meaning you've, you've made me obedient. And then he says, verse 7, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I would propose to you that this is David's understanding that he is the promised one. Or at least he's in the line of descent of the promised one. He descends from Judah, who descends from Abraham, who descends from Adam and Eve. And I think David is saying, those prophecies, they're written about me. But then he, he also knows 
that these prophecies ultimately are going to be uh, fulfilled in, in the one who descends from him, his seed. So here's what I'm suggesting. In Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, you have Saul and his really idolatrous sacrifices being replaced by the obedience, the willingness to obey of the Davidic king. And I think you have the same kind of replacement in Hebrews chapter 10. But, but the, the terms are slightly different. Whereas in Isaiah 40, you've got Saul and his wicked sacrifice. In Hebrews 10, you've got Moses and his ineffectual sacrifices. Not ineffectual in a, in a limited sense in which they're intended to function, but ineffectual in an ultimate sense. Because as he says, as the author of Hebrews says, um, in verse 1, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? And so I think what the author of Hebrews is doing is saying something like, in the same way that Saul was replaced by David, the old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant. And the sacrifices of the old covenant have been, have been transcended, fulfilled, completed and brought to an end through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Okay, that, there's, my, there's my attempt. Any, any, do you want to discuss the use of Hebrews 40 in uh, uh, Hebrews 40, Psalm 40 in Hebrews 10 or, um, or any of the other uh, instances of the use of the Old Testament that we've seen in Psalms? Everybody okay? I mean, I'm happy to talk about this or we can keep going. Any, any thoughts, questions, comments? Maybe you can think about it as, you, as the days go by, yeah? So part of this is your identification. The first part was Joseph. Do you see a strong similarity between David and Joseph? I know that's not the main point of what you're saying. Right. It seems like yes, I do. Yes. And I think that the authors of Samuel... So um, uh, one of my students, a guy named Sam Imadi, wrote his dissertation on uh, the function of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And he argues that... Joseph is an anticipatory fulfillment of the seed of the woman who brings to pass the blessing of Abraham through which all the, nation, all the families of the earth are blessed. And Joseph, uh, it's interesting how uh, there's a lot of terminology that's similar between like Genesis 1 through 3 and Genesis 37 through 50. And um, um, when you start thinking about these things, you know, Joseph, he gets these, these dreams that seem to designate him as the uh, the chosen one or the um, the Lord's the Lord's mediator uh, where his twelve brothers and his mother and father are bowing down to him then they reject him uh, he's he has this period of being enslaved and uh, persecuted and tormented and then he's exalted over all Egypt and all the earth comes to buy bread from Joseph so Joseph is really blessing the nations through his through God's presence with him and God's blessing of him. And then um, at the end of the book, in Genesis 49, um, the terminology that was used of Joseph in the dreams in Genesis 37, um, where the sheaves are bowing down to him, it's, it's like Jacob takes that from Joseph and applies that terminology to Judah. And he says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your mother's sons bow down before you. And that... I mean, th those are the only two bow-down instances in, in this whole... They, they bow down to Joseph, and then in the prophecy about Judah, in Genesis 49, 8 through 12, they're going to bow down to Judah. So it's like, it's like Joseph's position is transferred, surprisingly, to Judah. And, and, I, and then there are other things that, um, that are similar between uh, Joseph and David, like... Um, Joseph's brothers are out shepherding the flock and his father sends him to check on them and that's when they treat him roughly and sell him into slavery. David's brothers have gone off with Saul and his father sends him to check on, on them and they're not real happy to see him. You know, they're, They think he's boasting and they think he ought to be home taking care of the flocks and in reality he's doing what God wants him to be doing. You know, um, So there, there are a lot of uh, similarities between David and Joseph and I think David saw those similarities and understood them and, and recognized that his persecution at the hand of fellow Israelites was like Joseph's persecution at the hand of fellow Israelites. And his exaltation was like Joseph's exaltation. 
And these patterns would be repeated in the future in, in the life of his descendant. I think he deduced that from. You also see these kinds of patterns in Moses, you know, designated as the Lord's mediator, rejected, persevering through difficulty, exalted, and, and used to deliver Israel. We're good to go forward? Yeah. Um, feel free to pursue it or not. Um, is there ever a hermeneutic cutoff where we say this is poetic hyperbole? Um, or would you say that's just not going far enough? And this is like for verse 2, um, the pit, David used that, uses that a lot. Just yeah. To talk about I, I was in trouble. Right. Um, so, so is there ever a place where we just stop and just say this is hyperbole? Or this is this is a question that we're all going to have to answer for ourselves on the basis of our understanding of the scriptures and and on the basis of what we understand to be going on. And so, um, I'll give you an example from. I mean, I understand the question you're asking. I think you're asking for criteria, for controls. And for, you know, how do we know when we've gone too far? So um, maybe you saw this recent book by Andrew Wilson and Alistair Roberts, Roberts called, I think it's called something like Echoes of Exodus. or so, It's got some, something to do with Exodus in the title. Um, um, I, I am in full agreement that the Exodus is tremendously significant. I'm in full agreement that... Um, the Exodus is a type, and that, that that type is previewed in the book of Genesis. But I think they're wrong about where they see it. So, for instance, they see Abraham being called out of Ur of the Chaldees as a preview of the Exodus from Egypt. And I think that totally misses it. But they argue for it in their book. I think a much better um, argument for, when, for when, a, when the Exodus was previewed in Abraham's life is um, the fact that he actually goes down into Egypt as a result of a famine, just like uh, Jacob and his brothers. Jacob and his sons would go down into Egypt as a result of a famine. Sarah is taken captive, just like the Israelites would be enslaved. Pharaoh enriches Abraham, just like Israel would plunder the Egyptians. God visits plagues on Pharaoh to liberate Sarah, just like God would liberate Israel through plagues. And then Abraham and Sarah come up out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, and in Genesis 15, they, they experience this covenant-making ceremony that everybody agrees. All the signs of the theophany there, the, the smoke, the fire, the darkness, and everything, it all that, all that imagery is in Exodus 19. And then God says in Genesis 15 what he says to Israel in, in Exodus 20. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees. But it's the, it's the bringing up out of Egypt that's the immediate. I think that's the precursor of the Exodus, not him coming out of Ur of the Chaldees to, you know, go from the land of your father's kindred and so forth. Um, so we can disagree with one another, you know? I mean, last night I was having a disagreement with someone who was telling me that Goliath, the way he was putting it was, um, Goliath is a serpent figure. Uh, and my response to that was, I would say Goliath is seed of the serpent, but I don't think the fact that Goliath wears scale armor means that he's a serpent figure. I mean, I think scale, I just don't read it that way. I, I think that, I think that misses, I, I think Goliath is the seed of the serpent. I think Goliath has his head crushed, just as the seed of the serpent are going to have their head crushed. But um, I don't think that means we should, you know, it's, yeah, I just, I just think that's a wrong way of putting it. Yeah, but so, and you know, if you guys think I'm putting it wrong ways, I'd love to hear about it. Um, if we're happy to go forward, yeah. This is just more of a question about the, the Hebrew passage maybe and how it's used in the Septuagint. Yes. In the Psalms. Yes. In the Hebrew passage, it's certainly a lot of times it's not a body. In the quote, it says, sacrifice is an offering you did not desire, but a body. Yes. Yeah, great question. So my, my understanding of what's happened there is that the Greek translator 
has done a, a part for whole move. He's, he's taken ear as a figure of speech, and instead of rendering it ear, he renders it body. Um, and I think that's not missing the import of what Psalm 40 is saying. Um, and it really sets things up nicely for the, you know, the move that the author of Hebrews wants to say. And in my view, well, I just, I, I agree with the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy when it says, insofar as translations accurately reflect the original, they can be regarded as the Word of God. And in that, in that instance, I would be of the opinion, I think with the author of Hebrews, that the Greek translation has accurately reflected the original, and therefore it can be regarded as the Word of God. So, so that's a you know, short answer. Keith, you look like you have a question. seed of the serpent. So a serpent figure sounds to me like you're talking about a fang of dang from the Wingfeather Saga. Yes. It sounds like you're saying this is a, this is a sort of fant fantastical presentation of this person as though he is a serpent. And I think you see that kind of thing in like the book of Daniel when Daniel in apocalyptic literature is symbolically representing non-Israelite non kingdoms as beasts. Right? And, and there, there's a lion and there's a bear and, you know, you have this animal imagery used and applied to these beastly foreign kingdoms. And I don't think that's the kind of move the author of Samuel is making when he describes Goliath as wearing scale armor. I think he's just describing his armor. Now, does, that, does the author of Samuel mean to identify Goliath with the seed of the serpent? Absolutely. No question. But he's not characterizing him the way that Daniel characterizes foreign kingdoms. That's the difference that I'm seeing. You happy with that? Okay. All right. I would invite you to turn with me over to Psalm 74. And we'll, we'll continue sort of in the same vein here. Psalm 74 is one of these psalms that is about threats to the temple. Uh, uh, really, an attack on the temple. And... Um, I think that Psalms 74 and 79 are probably responding to things like uh, 1 Kings 14.25 and 2 Chronicles 12.2-4, really 1-12, through 12, 2 Chronicles 12, where Shishak, king of Egypt, comes up and invades Jerusalem and um, attacks the temple, and he, and he plunders the temple and he does damage to it. Uh, but the reason I want to look at Psalm 74 is because of what the psalmist says in verses 12 through 17, where he says, so, you know, he's crying out in verse 10, how long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Why do you hold back your hand in verse 11? And then he starts making affirmations in verse 12. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might talking about the Red Sea. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Um, I think he's talking here in verse 12 when he says, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. I think he's saying the defeat of Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea was a crushing of the serpent's head. So he's using symbolic imagery to describe the defeat of Egypt and Leviathan, I think, is a symbol of, of the, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. And he has his head crushed when God delivers his people at, at the exodus from Egypt. So, um, so I think the psalmist is interpreting the exodus in light of Genesis 3.15. So I don't know if, if uh, your experience was like mine, but um, I've had people say to me, well, if Genesis 3.15 is so important, why is it never quoted or referenced in the rest of the Old Testament? In response to, to which I'm like, well, it is, if you know how to read. And if you, if you don't, I mean, if you, if you have any literary sensitivity, this is what, you know what people do with this text? They think that, they, they go to ancient Near Eastern creation myths. That's where they go. And they say, 
This is reflecting the violence between the gods and Yahweh's conquest over the other gods at creation. That is a foreign worldview. That is not the worldview of the Bible. That is not the worldview that, that uh, Asaph has embraced. In Asaph's worldview, Genesis 1 and 2 tells the true story. And God didn't need to defeat any other powers when he created the world. And he's clearly talking about the parting of the Red Sea, not the creation of the world. That's not to deny that the parting of the world's Red Sea has to do with, you know, the creation of a new Adam, Israel, that's going to enter into a new Eden, the promised land, and engage upon a new attempt at God's purpose, which is covering the dry lands with his glory as the waters cover the sea. I think all that's true. But the ancient Near Eastern creation myths are out of place in, in this context. And they reflect a, a, a foreign worldview, not the worldview of the Bible. This same thing happens over in Psalm 89. Look at, look at Psalm 89, and we'll start reading in verse 9. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab. And in Isaiah 30, chapter 30, verse 1, Isaiah says, Egypt's help is worthless. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who sits still. And if, when you look Rahab up in, the, in BDB, the, the Hebrew lexicon, it'll tell you that it's a mythical sea monster of the waters. So it's like a serpentine, you know, mythical creature of the great deep. So um, Isaiah seems to be saying uh, Egypt wants to identify with these snakes. And, you know, Pharaoh's got this cobra on his headpiece. And um, um, Isaiah is saying to Israel, don't appeal to Egypt. Their help is worthless. They are Rahab who sits still. You should rely on Yahweh. That's what Isaiah is saying. And the psalmist here, Ethan the Ezraite, is saying, you crushed Rahab. And this is right after verse 9, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Here again, I think he's talking about the parting of the Red Sea and the scattering of God's enemies with his mighty arm. You know, God stretched out his strong hand and mighty arm when he delivered Israel from Egypt at the Exodus. And, and so again, this, this symbolic depiction is identifying Egypt with um, uh, the serpent and saying the Egyptians are seed of the serpent and when God defeated them it was a crushing of the serpent's head that's a symbolic interpretation I think of, of Genesis 3.15 any questions or comments about that? yeah well I think that the particular thing that's in view there is the parting of the Red Sea and, and probably the reason that's in view is because that's where the army of Pharaoh was defeated. And then, you know, Leviathan is this serpentine beast, this mighty whale-like animal in the waters. So I think that's why Leviathan comes up. And, and the sea is like a symbol of the place from which evil comes. Thus, at the end of Revelation 12, Satan is standing on the shore of the sea and he summons up this beast out of the waters. And... You know, at the end, uh, the sea will be no more. There'll be no more place from which evil arises. Um, let me take you over now to Psalm 105. Actually, I want to start in 104. No, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I keep backing it up. Psalm 102 is what I want. And I want to I look with you at this passage in 102, 25 through 28. Um, this is, Psalm 102 is a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. 101 is a psalm of David. 103 is a psalm of David. You get the sense that the one afflicted in 102 is David, but might be somebody else. Whatever the case, in verses 25 and following, the psalmist writes, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Where do you 
Where do we have that kind of phrase elsewhere in the Psalter? The heavens are the work of your hands. What comes to mind? Psalm 8, that's exactly right. So he's clearly talking about creation. Then he says in verse 26, they will perish, but you will remain. What will perish? The heavens, right? Creation's going to perish. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. You will change them like a robe. It's like the old creation will be taken off like an old garment and be done away with, and a new garment is going to be put on. What is this suggesting? How would we put this if we were talking in the terms of the book of Revelation? Bingo, exactly. This is talking about the new heavens and new earth. God created the world, and, and the world is going to wear out, and God is going to change it. Verse 27, but you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. This is a, this is a poetic way of saying, this is a poetic way for the, the psalmist to affirm his confidence that God is going to renew the world. There's going to be a new heavens and new earth. And his seed, the, the seed of his, the offspring of his servants will be established in that new heavens and new earth. Now, do you think they're going to be established in bodies that are mortal? Or do you think there's also other implications here of, of resurrection from the dead? I mean, I think, I think mortal bodies in a new heavens and new earth makes no sense. And I think if you, if you put yourself in the, in the minds of these Old Testament authors, if you expect God to overcome sin and the effects of sin, I think it's a natural conclusion that you expect God to raise the dead and to uh, fit people with new bodies that, that will no more be prone to sin and death. And so I, I think that uh, there's a lot that's implied here. And, and of course, as you know, this passage, um, they will perish, but you will remain. This is quoted in, in Hebrews chapter 1. And, and it's, uh, the, it's addressed to Jesus. And, and the move that I think the author of Hebrews is making is akin to the move that, the, the, uh, that John makes in John 1, 1 through 4, when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning was with God. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. So I think the way that the author of Hebrews is thinking about this text in Psalm 102 is parallel with the way that John is thinking about Genesis 1 and its relationship to the Word. In other words, I think it's a valid interpretation of the Old Testament, given, uh, given what has been revealed about Christ and his role in, in creation. Any, any questions, comments, thoughts? Uh, in, in, yeah. So you're saying that, I mean, the main, if the main intent here in Psalm 102 is to talk about the, the new heavens and new earth, but obviously the writer of Hebrews is using that text to talk about Christ's eternality as opposed to create, created things yeah. like angels. Yeah, Christ's eternality and his sovereignty over new heavens and new earth. Which would speak to the fact that there can be more ideas coming out of a text than just one main point. Yes, I agree with that. But I would want to say that the, uh, it's a genetic development. It's not a, it's not a creational development. You see the difference? When I say creational, I mean, I mean you've created a new meaning that wasn't at least there in seed form. So it's developing an idea that's there. That's what, that's, that's what I think is dangerous when people say they've generated new meaning or they've, they've creatively reappropriated or reformulated. You know, any, anytime you, you start suggesting they're saying something, you're say, they're saying it means something it didn't originally mean. Uh, I, I mean, the problem with that is it's not going to be, they're trying to, they're trying to persuade their contemporaries and that's not going to persuade their contemporaries. Nor is it going to persuade anyone who thinks carefully about these things today and tries to, you know, think their way through the, the arguments that the Bible is making. And, and so I think Moises Silva is right when there was a book that, um, that Silva and uh, Kaiser did on, on something to do with the use of the Old Testament in the New, and they both sort of laid out their perspective. And um, 
and Silva responded to the, um, the, uh, that claim that it's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that validates the interpretation of the old and the new. And he said, what this implies is that they, they got it wrong. And he said, and that undercuts the intellectual foundation of the Christian faith. So in other words, you know, there's not a, there's not a rational explanation. And, and so it also makes me nervous when some of these postmodernists, they, they're, they're almost hopeless about meaning and about, they're, they're too negative toward reason. I mean, the whole idea of persuading somebody is you're using your reason to try and convince them. And it's either convincing or it's not. There, there are other things involved, like their rebellion and their sin, but I'm contending that the Bible is actually persuasive. Yeah. Everybody good? Okay. Um, let's see. Okay. So we get, we get new creation at the end of Psalm 102. And then um, look at... Uh, Look at 105, and this, this follows, 104 starts at creation, um, verse 2, 104-2, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. I think this is more, you know, cosmic temple imagery that's being used. And, and in 104, it's like the psalmist walks through the created world. And then in 105, he starts into the history of Israel. And... Um, he talks about the covenant with Abraham in verse 9 and how that covenant was passed to Isaac at the end of verse 9, confirmed to Jacob in verse 10. And then, um, and then it's interesting that he says in, 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 let's read verses 12 through 15. I think this is really interesting. When they were few in number, he's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When they were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. So he's talking about the way that God protected Abraham and Isaac and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the land of promise, even though they didn't reign over that land. He rebuked kings on their account. These are the sister fib episodes, you know, when Abimelech takes uh, Pharaoh and Abimelech both take Sarah, and then Abimelech takes. Uh, Isaac's wife, uh, Rebecca. Yeah, yeah, Rebecca. Um, and then he says, verse 15, saying, touch not my anointed ones. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were never anointed. And yet the psalmist is referring to them as anointed ones. And I think as he does this, it forges a connection between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the king from David's line. So you follow what I'm saying here? He's referring to these guys as anointed ones, even though they were never literally anointed. And, and yet by calling them that, he evokes the anointing of David and Solomon and uh, the, the, the hoped-for anointed one, that is the Messiah. Touch, my, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. And then I think this is really interesting, what happens in verse 16 and following. And um, uh, I want to commend to you um, some practices. Um, I, I, may, mainly what I want to say is just read the Bible, you know. Read the Bible over and over. And as much as you can, I would say read the Psalms in sequence. So a lot of, a lot of what I'm trying to argue here today grows out of my own um, study of the Psalms, and what I did was, back years and years ago, I started doing this, I would, I would work through, let's say, Psalm 1, get my head around all the grammar and, and um, syntax of the Hebrew to where I could read it pretty smoothly. And then I got the Hebrew Bible on audio, and I just hit play, and I just listened to Psalm 1 over and over until, you know, what I had, the, the words I had looked up, the phrases I had looked up, it just reinforced it. And then I did the same thing with Psalm 2, and then I you know, listened to Psalm 2 over and over. Then I went back and hit play on Psalm 1 and just listened straight through Psalms 1 and 2, and then just kept going. And by the time I was to like Psalm 20, I was like, man, these Psalms are all so profoundly interconnected with one another. And they're, they're all moving in the same direction. They're, they're singing the same story. 
And then with Psalm 105, um, the, the conclusion I'm about to advocate here came to me as night after night I read Psalm 105 aloud to my family. We just, in, in the week leading up to me preaching Psalm 105, every night I just read Psalm 105. And as I read this text, it was like the Bible was provoking my thinking. So look at verse 16. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So the psalmist is thinking about the end of the book of Genesis, and he's thinking about the way that famine results in Jacob and his sons going down into Egypt, and he interprets Joseph being sold as a slave as God preparing um, Israel's entrance into Egypt by sending Joseph as a forerunner. He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was, a, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. What Joseph had said, right? Joseph gives these prophecies about the baker and the cupbearer, and then they come to pass, and then Pharaoh has these dreams, and he's like, who's going to interpret these dreams? And I don't, I think it's the, I can't remember if it's the baker or the cupbearer. All of a sudden, he remembers. There was this guy in prison who correctly interpreted these dreams that we had. You should go ask him what this dream means. And then Joseph is exalted. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. I think what he's saying is, Joseph had those dreams initially about how his father and mother and brothers would bow down to him. So it's like he got this promise. And then he suffered. And it was like he was being tested. Would he believe what God had promised? And then verse 20, the king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And then verses 24 and 25, the Lord made his people very fruitful. The beginning of Exodus, the people of Israel were fruitful and multiplied and begins to intimidate Pharaoh. Verse 25, he turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. And then verse 26, he sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he, has cho whom he had chosen. Then he starts talking about the plagues, the signs, the miracles. Verse 28, the darkness. Uh, verse 31, the swarms of flies. Now, when you read all this together, you get this sense that Joseph goes down into Egypt and he immediately precedes the exodus from Egypt. Um, I'm, I, here's, a, here's a proposal. And, and again, you be a Berean, you think about this, you consider whether these things are so. You've got these guys. So Joseph is a Jew who's taken to a foreign land and he's exalted in that foreign land to a place of, of significant leadership. You've got these guys that really profoundly correspond to Joseph, probably the most significant of which is Daniel. Daniel is taken to a foreign land. Like Joseph, he's, it's like he's exalted to the right hand of the king in Babylon. Like Joseph, he can interpret dreams. Like Joseph, he, um, um, the king clothes him and rewards him. I mean, there are all these similarities between Daniel and Joseph. And, and here's what I would propose happened. Um, Daniel is reflecting on his life, and he knows the scriptures profoundly, and he notices, look at all this stuff in my life that is just like what happened to Joseph. I mean, what, one, of the, one of the similarities is uh, that... Um, Daniel is, is put in the custody. It's in Aramaic, but the literal phrase is, if they translate it, you know, the captain of the king's guard. The literal phrase is uh, the chief of the slaughterers. When, when Joseph is first put into custody down in Egypt, you know what the literal Hebrew phrase is? I mean, it's Hebrew to Aramaic, but it's the exact same phrase. Joseph is put in the custody of the chief of the slaughterers. So I think Daniel, he's looking at his life, and he's like, man, I'm, I'm just like Joseph. And then I think he when, he, when he goes to write his book, he, he decides, I've got to write this up. And I think there's a, 
there's a suggestion that is made. It's implicit. It's never declared. But if you know the prophets, then the suggestion begins to, to work in your brain. It begins to ferment and, and uh, seed your thinking. Okay, so here's what the prophets say. Well, let me, let me read you an instance of it. Um, so if you want to look at this, this is Isaiah chapter 11. Um, so um, verse 11 in that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria from Egypt from Pathros from Kus all the places to which they've been scattered uh, but Assyria is listed, listed first and Assyria is often uh, equated with Babylon and then look at verse 15 the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river. Isaiah is talking about the new exodus, and he's saying what God did at the first exodus is what he's going to do at the second exodus, the new exodus. And then in, at the end of verse, six, or verse 16, he says, There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Okay, so it's like a sojourn in Egypt, Sojourn in Assyria, a.k.a. Babylon. Exodus from Egypt, new exodus, and return from exile. Now, here's, here's what I think Daniel thought. Joseph was sent ahead of Israel and sort of prepared the way for them in Egypt. Daniel was one of the first people exiled. 605 B.C., he was carried off into exile. Uh, Daniel was sent ahead of of Israel into exile and sort of prepared the way for them. Joseph immediately precedes the Exodus. Daniel immediately precedes the new Exodus. I think that's why Daniel draws attention to all these parallels between himself and Joseph. And I think that, that um, as you read the book of Daniel, he's crying out to the Lord that the Lord would do this prophesied new Exodus and restore his people to the land and cause the temple to be rebuilt. And then he's given a prophecy that um, reveals that there's actually going to be this extended period of time before the Messiah comes and is crucified, which will bring about that prophesied new exodus. But even in Daniel's life, you know, Daniel tells us that he remained until the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, and uh, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, according to uh, Ezra, Cyrus issues that decree that anyone that wants to return to the land, let him go up. So... Um, I'm suggesting that Daniel understood himself as a type of the one to come, and I'm, I'm taking that from Psalm 105. I'm, I, well, it's informed by Psalm 105 and the way that Joseph is, um, is presented as this forerunner figure who comes before the exodus from Egypt. So also I think Daniel is like a, a fulfillment of what Joseph typified, a forerunner for the new exodus salvation that Christ would bring. Questions, comments, thoughts? We're basically out of time for this session. Yeah. My question regards preaching the song. Yeah. I'm growing more and more convinced with your time with us that the Psalms are a recapitulation of Israel's history. And the most fruitful Christ-centered, organically Christ-centered way to read the Psalms is by overlaying it on creation and all that. So with that in place, should we seek to lay a foundation of Israel's history before we preach the Psalms, and especially I'm thinking in more biblically illiterate context. If you just dove in and started preaching like, yeah. like who's Abimelech, who's Doeg, all these Right, things. right. How did you approach that when you preached through the Psalms? So, um, um, so uh, Pastor Dan w was talking to me yesterday about how as you stay in one place and preach for a long time, people get used to you. And people learn how you think. And people, it's like, uh, I mean, sometimes people sort of treat it comically, but um, people that have been around me a long time, I don't have to go into a whole lot of detail. New people, I do want to explain things, but if I've been with a group of people for a while, you know, that um, they're, they're going to have heard these kinds of explanations from me. Some things that we do 
uh, every, every Sunday we have an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading. And if I were to preach Psalm 105, I would select an Old Testament reading, whether from Daniel or Genesis you know, 37 through 50 or maybe the first chapters of Exodus. I would select something that I was going to you know, address uh, in the sermon. And then the New Testament reading likewise would correspond to this passage. So I'm trying to strategically select passages that are going to create a biblical theological bridge with what I'm doing in, in the sermon. Uh, and then, I don't always do this, but um, I was tremendously helped. Um, and I used to follow this sort of cookie-cutter sermon introduction outline, and I maybe my sermons are not as good than, now that I've sort of gone away from it. But I used to, every time I would preach, I would try to first grab people's attention, and then I would try to um, provoke a sense of need for what the passage teaches, so try to help them feel the need for this passage, and then I would try to um, talk about the broader biblical context of the passage, and that's where the so that that's where the biblical theological introduction would come in, um, and and you know as you do that over and over, people hopefully we're teaching people how to read their Bibles, and then and then the the uh, the immediate context of the passage and what you think is the main point. Those are the five things that I would go after in a sermon introduction. And so week after week, it would give me an opportunity to say, let's, let's think about the big story of the Bible and where this particular passage fits in the Bible's big story. And then I would try to sound the notes, you know, and, and sketch in the details of uh, relevant background for the passage that we're dealing with. 